0: Welcome to Chapter 74 of A History of England, cheerfully entitled The Storm Breaks. This is David Beeson, and together we're going to enjoy the descent of Britain into yet another major European war. There had already been the War of Spanish Succession. Then, thanks to Robert Walpole, Britain's First Prime Minister, more interested in peace and commerce than in war, the British skipped the War of Polish Succession. But they were back for the War of Austrian Succession and, with a vengeance, for the Seven Years' War. In all of them, Britain emerged as the victor over France, though never in a final, conclusive way. Next to Britain's serious discomfiture came the War of American Independence, where it took a beating in its turn. That was a bit of a boost for France, though it gained very little by it. And it still wasn't a knockout blow for either side. So, with the score at 3-1 and one no show, Britain and France still had some major issues to settle. The way we left things last time, they were about to start doing that. Not that Britain was all that keen. As Pitt's biographer William Haig points out, peace and prosperity were the watchwords of the government. Pitt was delighted to be able in the 1792 budget to both pay off some more of the national debt and reduce taxes. The economy was booming. Pitt saw no reason to expect the situation to change any time soon. Nearly a century and a half later, the great Danish physicist Niels Bohr would say that prediction is very difficult, especially if it's about the future. Pitt's speech of the 17th of February 1792 was a perfect illustration of the point. Unquestionably, he said, there never was a time in the history of this country when, from the situation of Europe, we might more reasonably expect 15 years of peace than we may at the present moment. The gap was just 62 days between that speech and the outbreak of war between France and a coalition led by Austria and Prussia. Pitt's government had alliances in place with Prussia and Holland. It decided that, as long as the territories of those allies weren't threatened, it would maintain its neutrality. After all, Pitt was focused on peace and prosperity. He was also having to deal with domestic problems caused, on the one hand, by people influenced by the ideals of the French Revolution, and on the other, by people, a far larger number, who were sick to death of not seeing much of that fabled prosperity reaching them. The membership of radical groups in Britain had skyrocketed. The Pitt government reacted by cracking down on any extra-parliamentary opposition, Thomas Paine, the most famous of the radicals, escaped to France, although the authorities didn't try hard to stop him, presumably preferring to avoid giving him the platform of a public trial. Many British believers in the revolution were living in France. The poet William Wordsworth was one of them. Mary Wollstonecraft, still seen by many as the key figure in the launch of modern feminism, was another. She'd published her Rights of Woman in response to Payne's Rights of Man. An early disappointment for her was how little the French revolutionaries planned to do about the misogyny of the regime they had replaced. As the revolution swung towards increasingly radical and bloodier measures, Wordsworth decided it would be wiser to cut his losses and abandon the legitimate daughter he'd fathered while in France and head back home. Mary Wollstonecraft began to be appalled by the accelerating rate of killings in the revolution, complaining, My blood runs cold and I sicken at the thought of a revolution which costs so much blood and bitter tears. She too came home, where she became depressed to the point of suicide, not just by political developments, but by the sad disappointments of her emotional life. However, many years earlier, she'd met the philosopher William Godwin, at a dinner in honour of Thomas Paine. Godwin had found her highly irritating, as her constant interruptions made it hard for him to listen to Payne, which was why he'd come in the first place. Now, though, when the two met up again, they found much to like and admire in each other. Annoyances were set aside, and they'd launched themselves into a marriage which might have been just the kind of ideal she'd always sought, based on... Friendship, reason, and mutual respect. Sadly, she died just a few months later of septicemia contracted from complications of the delivery of her daughter. That daughter, though, later married the poet Shelley and made a name for herself with a creation that still resonates today. She wrote the novel Frankenstein. And what of Thomas Paine? He was granted honorary French citizenship and was even elected to the National Assembly, although he spoke practically no French. He was associated with the Girondins, the less radical faction of the Jacobins, so when the ultra-radicals, led by men like Robespierre, took power, he found himself jailed. The way he tells the story, when the warders came around marking the doors of those who were to be executed the following day, his cell door happened to be open. So the mark was on what turned out to be the inside when his door was closed. Only thanks to that, he claimed, did he survive to tell the tale. Back in Britain, measures were proclaimed against wicked and seditious writings. Authors, printers and distributors of such material were to be prosecuted. Way back in chapter 11, we talked about the end of Elizabeth I's life and how difficult it made planning the succession that... Compassing the death of the sovereign, which could mean as little as mentioning the possibility that the monarch might die, was regarded as high treason. Pitt's government now revived that principle and used it to reinterpret the notion of treason as widely as possible to cover pretty well any radical opposition to the king or to the king's government, which happened to be Pitt's government. Thomas Walker, a Manchester radical, was hauled before the courts for having allegedly said, Damn the King! The case collapsed when the witness against him was found to have been a drunk and a perjurer, but just by bringing it, the authorities showed how far they were prepared to go to stifle dissent. One group was held in the Tower of London, again harking back to far older and unlamented times. The writer and editor John Thelwell was held for five months in solitary confinement before being moved to Newgate Prison, where his cell had almost no light or air. His pregnant wife, overwrought by the stress of it all, miscarried and died. Eventually trials were arranged against him and two fellow radicals, all charged with conspiring to overthrow the government and perpetrate the king's death. They were defended by a brilliant protector of civil rights, Thomas Erskine. The juries in all three trials showed a bloody-mindedness and independence that persists right down to the present day. They acquitted all three defendants. There's a long tradition of juries giving the finger to governments they view as overstepping an authoritarian mark. Nor was it only radical thought that was being rejected. Even simple reformist measures were thrown out. A Whig MP attempted again to reform Parliament, something Pitt had wanted to do at the start of his political career. Now, though, Pitt led the successful campaign in Parliament to vote the measure down. Pitt's justification was that there was a spirit of insurrection around the country and even simple reform should not be attempted in those conditions. He was right about the conditions, though the extent of his repressive reaction may be more questionable. There was significant unrest. Bad harvests had led to hunger, despite all those boasts of prosperity. As well as the enclosures of common agricultural land that we discussed last time, the accelerating Industrial Revolution had led to the adoption of far more mechanised production methods in factories. That left a great many manual workers unemployed. A movement emerged to break machines. An early leader may have been a figure called Edward Ludham, and the movement came to be known as followers of Captain or General Ludd, and therefore as Luddites. As well as machine-breaking, there were also riots throughout Britain and Ireland generally, but the authorities had the force and the readiness to use it to prevent them getting out of hand. Meanwhile, back at the war, you may remember that much to everyone's astonishment, the French had stopped the Prussian invasion at the Battle of Valmy. The French counter-offensive into the Austrian Netherlands, present-day Belgium, had run into problems with defeat after defeat, often made worse by mass desertions. Those desertions, of course, only sharpened the paranoia and conspiracy theories back at home, as well as intensifying the witch hunts for supposed traitors mostly resolved by prolific use of the guillotine. Even if the French incursion into the Netherlands soon bogged down, Britain was always nervous of the presence of a potentially threatening force there. It was far too close to the channel, you see. And there was a particular threat towards the nation next door, the other part of the Netherlands, the Dutch Republic, Britain's ally. Then French naval forces entered the estuary of the River Scheldt, Extending through modern Belgium and Holland, and with the great trading city of Antwerp at its head. This was a great deal too close for comfort, especially to Britain's Dutch allies. Peace and prosperity might have to move onto the back burner. Pitt ordered naval mobilisation. That was late 1792. On the 21st of January 1793, as we've already seen, Louis XVI, or citizen Louis Capet, as he was known to the revolutionaries, was executed. Let us fling down to the kings the head of a king, proclaimed the Jacobin leader Georges Danton. It was an act that sent waves of horror washing over the monarchies of Europe. As William Haig points out, Pitt denounced... The foulest and most atrocious deed. Even Charles James Fox, still a staunch backer of the French Revolution, had to declare that the execution had stained the noblest cause that ever was in the hands of men. And yet, even so, Pitt was not going to go to war over the French monarchy or against the Revolution. Haig rightly points out that, to Pitt, it was important to be clear that the reason for war was British security. And not French royalty. Even so, the execution moved things on a critical stage in London. There, Bernard Francois de Chauvelin, who, after months of waiting, had just received his credentials from the French Republic to be its ambassador to Britain, instead of receiving accreditation from the foreign secretary, was expelled under newly adopted alien law. Back in Paris, that measure was taken as hostile and France officially declared war on Britain. And so we're on our way. People often think of these wars as Napoleonic. There was indeed, even back then, a Corsican called Napoleone di Bonaparte, who was a junior officer in the French army. He was in Corsica at this time, far from having made a name for himself, and further still from having given that name to any wars. No, what Britain was about to join was the War of the First Coalition, the first stage of the French Revolutionary Wars. The coalition was led by major powers, notably Prussia, Austria, Britain and the Dutch Republic. France soon declared war on Spain too, and a large number of other European states also joined in. Pitt, who, with great pride, announced a further repayment of debt at his first wartime budget, must have believed that the divided and disorganised French couldn't last long against such opposition. The coalition would win quickly and win big. And then, of course, he could get back to his preferred pursuit, working for peace and prosperity, and the great British pastime of paying down national debt. Things, however, didn't work out that way, as we'll very soon discover.